Since I have the mic now, I will say that there is no man that I respect more than your pastor. He is a wonderful husband, has been for the last 13 years, and every day I love him more and and respect him for all the things that he does and all the the behind-the-scenes things that he does, pouring his heart out in prayer and preparation for Sundays and Wednesdays. He loves God and he loves this church, and it's very evident to me. And so we're very thankful to be here and that God to see what God's going to do. And however long he keeps us here, we are just so grateful and so blessed to be your leaders in this church. And so thank you guys. With that, if you would like to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to read the chapter. 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there became a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephet of Abel, Abel you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall, put, shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found the Elisha, the son of Shephat, who was plowing with the twelve oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Thank you very much. This is the word of God. So I have not really done an entire chapter on a Sunday morning that does this long. But I did this on purpose because this is really one story for us. So far in this series on the life of Elijah, on purpose, and because the Bible emphasizes as well, I've emphasized Elijah's boldness, his prayer life, and his courageous attitude for a very good reason. So that when we get to 19 here, it may be as jarring for you as it is for everybody else, that Elijah, who has been highly revered, is, as James 5 says it, a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was human. And like everybody else, he has times of where he feels low. He has times where he gets depressed. Probably the proper word is despondent. Despondent means a, a loss of hope, a loss of, to be in low spirit. In one sermon I spoke about, I spoke about how the Bible is not a collection of fairy, fairy tales. And last week, I said how these people are not superheroes. At the end of last week's sermon, in chapter 18, Elijah runs to Jezreel. This is the capital city in the region where Ahab and Jezebel and the people who just witnessed the miracle on Mount Carmel are. The story in chapter 18, at the end of 18, you have fire come down from heaven. One of the most amazing miracles that have ever taken place. It seems like the height of what's supposed to happen. And Elijah, he runs to the capital of the region, the place where, you know, they wanted to find him before this so they could kill him because he has an expectation, well, now revival is going to come. Now the king's heart will be changed. And that's not what happens because this isn't a fairy tale. If this was a pure flex show, all of a sudden, like after Mount Carmel, he runs over Je Jezreel. All of a sudden, newsboys would start playing. My God's not dead. He's surely alive. And, you know, the credits would roll and, and Israel would, would have followed God. The northern kingdom would have followed the Lord. And uh, they would have done so until the Messiah was revealed. But that's not what happened. What does happen is a great disappointment for the prophet. 
and he does not take it in stride. If you feel weak today, I want you to know something. If you've had times where you feel low, you've been depressed, despondent, you are not out of God's will. Elijah, God was not done with Elijah because he has a low moment. In fact, what this whole, this whole chapter is about is lovingly helping him through a time of despondency, of depression. We are about to see the breaking point of this prophet. He had a plan in mind. This plan did not go, go well. So he wonders if God has a plan at all. We often think God doesn't have a plan when his plan is not our plan. God will not allow anything to be our center other than him. What I mean to say is that your life is not your story. It's his story and you have a part in it. If you think that you are the center, you are the main character, then when things don't go your way, when tragedy strikes, and of course our spirit breaks, the good news is that God knows this. So what we see in the story of the prophet is not a stern rebuke, but a lovingly gentle healing of God's servant. In this, in this uh, story so far and what had happened so far, we have the weak king Ahab. You know what should have happened? What should have happened is Ahab comes home. Ahab sees the fire from heaven. He sees the rain. He and Elijah are cool at the end of chapter 18. Elijah says, go up there, have a little party because it's about to rain. Get ready. And it does rain. So he goes to Jezreel. You know what should have happened? He should have, he should have kicked open the door, told Jezebel, no longer will we serve the Baals and the Asherahs in Israel because there is a God in Israel and it is the Lord. We will tear down the idols. We will cut down the Asherah poles. And you yourself better convert to Judaism or you're out too. But that's not what happens. Because even though he's a king, he's a very weak man. And he allows the overbearing presence of an ungodly wife to cow him in to continuing the same fruitless, pathetic devotion to these idols that he had before. At the end of 18... He and the prophet are, 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 are good. He and, and uh, Elijah are good. He, he sees the fire from heaven, and instead of standing up, he, he falls back down and lets his wife send that letter to Elijah. Cowardness is vicious. Revelation 21.8 includes, amongst many other kinds of sinners, cowards. That seems a bit harsh, you know, people who just are afraid. But do you know why? Because cowardice is vicious. The Nazis, we all know the Nazis killed 6 million Jews. We know the communists killed a whole lot more than that. But for every one that was killed, you had a community, you had a nation, you had an individual that had to either look the other way or point out those people. And we read the diary of Anne Frank and we get furious. Why? Because somebody ratted her and her family out. That's a coward. That is vicious coward that I'm going to then sacrifice the people in my life so that I might have a better go of it. Ahab was strong. He was powerful. He was smart. Unfortunately, he was a coward and he lets his wife kill the prophets of God. He had already been doing this. In fact, his aide, his aide had to hide a number of God's prophets in a cave and feed them water and bread in order to save their lives. While Ahab is just kind of like, do what you want. Killing the prophets. You don't need to be a queen or a king of some nation to know what Ahab, um, what Ahab and Jezebel had done. You have many things in your life that are there by God for your good and to keep you close by him. 
those are like prophets in your life that are trying to keep you on the straight and narrow, keep you close to the heart of God. But you might also have a Jezebel who wants those things dead. Things like church, godly friends, mentors, parents, worship, many other things. Those are the prophets in your life. And Jezebels in your life scorn those things. Your Jezebel might be a spouse. It might be a friend. Or really anybody who wants those things out of your life. The husband or wife who hates that you go to church. The parent who forbids their kid from coming to youth group. They cringe and get angry when you play worship music or pray before a meal. We can see this on a big level or for an entire nation such as Israel, but I've seen it far much more on the smaller scale. When people are trying to live for the Lord and there's people in their life who are trying to tear them down. When I'd be preaching to teenagers, I'd say, watch out for crab friends. And the story goes that if you have, if you catch one crab, you need to put a bucket, you need to put a lid on the, on the bucket because they'll crawl right out. But if you have two or more crabs, you don't need a top because what will happen is one will try to crawl out and the other one will rip them right down. Watch out for crab friends. However this goes, you have certain things in your life. You have the devil himself who wants to keep you from following Jesus Christ, following in obedience, and we need to have the courage to stand up for what God has put in our hearts. And here's the amazing thing. If we lack wisdom, we only have to ask and God gives it. We are to live in peace with all people as possible, but first and foremost, our love for God and love for people goes before all things. Ahab, unfortunately, he is not a leader. He is a boss. He is not a leader. He is a boss. And there's a huge difference. A boss, a boss sees everybody in their life, especially those who work for them, as cogs in the machine. And if the cog, you know, if, if, if they don't oil the cog, it gets rusty, it gets bad, they just replace it and they throw it away. When you do this with people in your life, it's, it's a really awful thing, right? You just use them to get ahead. This has been something that's been a problem in a lot of churches too. You just use up your volunteers until they have nothing left and then you just throw them to the side. Ahab was a boss. He was a, he was a boss baby. Uh, we find that in the, in the story of Naboth and that's a weird movie that I'm not going to watch. Um, but he's not a leader. That is a weird movie. Like I watch, sometimes I watch kids movies because you know there's not going to be cussing in them, but that's a bridge too far. <laughs> um, he's not a leader. A leader stands in front. He does not stand behind. If, if people are, lit, are carrying a block, a leader is in front pulling the hardest. A boss is up on the block forcing them to carry him too. We have the wicked queen, Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Well, she is an actual person. When describing Ahab, I talked about Jezebel as a sort of attitude of someone who keeps you from being obedient to God. However, she was an actual person. She was a forceful, intelligent. Ultimately, she was a wicked person. She had God-given gifts in areas of leadership, tenacity, but she used them all for evil, for the killing of God's prophets. She was... She was guilty of killing innocent people and maligning their good name. She is what I imagine God had in mind when he begged the Israelites not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Jezebel today has become a pejorative, a byword for, um, for somebody you, you really don't like. Most of the time, it's used very inappropriately. Um, it's much like the name Judas. If you call somebody a Judas, you mean they are a betrayer. It has to be the ultimate 
mean thing to do to somebody to use their name like pejorative. Um, over in uh, my last church, Dubuque, there was this little little girl, um, one of my friends' uh, daughters. Um, she was like one, like one, two years old. And she had this thing where she'd call people a Tina. And what it meant was that you're like mean or she didn't like you. She'd be like, you're a Tina. And it was a funny inside joke. I was like, you are like, you are like 14-year-old mean girl level (laughs) in your insults, Mimi. Um, That's what Jezebel has become. Her very name has become a byword. Um, some people don't think it's ever appropriate to call someone a Jezebel. However, Jesus Christ himself does it in Revelation. Um, and fact of the matter is, there are some people in the church and in culture who do act like Jezebel that we read in the Bible here, who are obsessed with power, who don't care what the, who don't care what the implications are. Um, they just want to have power. And they will rip down what they want to rip down. This is, this is not gendered. Men and women can be Jezebels. You have a lot of people who have the veneer of being a Christian, but they try to lead people away from God's word. That's a Jezebel. Without reservation, that's a Jezebel. When people start attacking God's word, they are acting like Satan himself. Did God really say? And they're acting like Jezebel, who doesn't care what happened at Mount Carmel. If she, she uses the words in some translations, in the actual translation, may, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely. If you read your Old Testament, you, you've heard that phrase before, right? The people of God say that when they're making their oath. May God deal with me, may it ever be so severely. But she says the gods as a way of blasphemy. Because Jezebel is also an attitude. It's an attitude that is obsessed with control and getting what you want despite the moral, ethical, or spiritual implications. So many churches split because a person has an attitude of a Jezebel and they just want control. If anything or anyone that threatens you out of your obedience and affection towards God, that is a Jezebel. How does Elijah, who stands before a king, flee before a queen? That is probably one of the things when people read this is like, what happened? What happened here? When Elijah is confronted by Ahab, Ahab calls him a troubler. In the Hebrew, it's a hard word to translate. So we say troubler. But what it means is that it would be better for you to die. Everybody would be happier if you just died and that you should be killed. It's a very aggressive word when he calls him that. And you know what, you know what uh, Elijah does? He says it right back to him. He's like, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. Woo! It is on. That is, that is, you know, something that is, that is like, um, I remember when, uh, let's see, when I was uh, working at the treatment facility, the teenagers, they had this really nasty thing they would say to each other at the time. I'm glad it's not a thing anymore. Maybe I shouldn't talk about it in case people do it again, but they would say, kill yourself, which is probably one of the nastiest things I think you can say to somebody. But that's what that means when he called him a troubler. And he says it right back to him. But then a note Jezebel doesn't come to him with a bunch of armed guys with a note. She says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severe, if you are not like one of them by tomorrow. And Elijah, he freaks out. Why does that happen? It's a toothless, it's a toothless threat as well. If Jezebel wanted Elijah dead, he would be dead. She wouldn't send him a note. She just got done killing a whole lot of prophets. She doesn't have any compunction about this, but it is toothless because she doesn't want to so much kill him as discredit him and his God after what happened at Mount Carmel. It's also toothless because the people in Jezreel right now are the people who are at Mount Carmel who had to get to shelter. So if she were to kill the prophet, it wouldn't go super well for her. It's a a toothless threat, but Elijah, 
Elijah, it, it strikes him to his very soul. It's one of those things where there's something happening that we are not being told directly, that we infer from the scriptures and draw out from the scriptures. Um, there's expectations that are not met. Elijah doesn't run only because the queen threatens him. This isn't, he doesn't just run because the queen threatens him. It's because this isn't the way it was supposed to go. Revival was supposed to happen. Either the people would dispose Ahab and Jezebel, or their hearts would have turned, and they would have done away with idol worship. Instead, it's the same old, same old. Elijah is the great prophet. God told Israel that much. But Israel remains unchanged. And we see this in Elijah's lament. He says, I am no better than my fathers. It is a cumulative frustration. In the sermon I talked about on the widow's son who died, I talked about her response wasn't just her son that died, even though that would have been terrible. It's her whole life. And for, for Elijah right here, it's all of the northern kingdom of Israel's life that's pressing down. All this idol verse, all this stuff, he prayed so hard it wouldn't rain. He didn't hear from God it wouldn't rain. He prayed so hard it wouldn't rain because of idol worship. And here they are clinging on to their idols. In his mind, it must have been like, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. It's a cumulative frustration. Elijah's distress isn't only because of Jezebel's letter. It's all the problems of all of Israel that he is just unable, he's unable to ride in the white horse and make it stop. He's also playing into Jezebel's hands. Unfortunately, Eliza does play into Jezebel's hands. He takes off. She doesn't want him dead so much as she wants him discredited. This is the whole this is the whole lot of people who just, there's a whole lot of people who just saw the Lord shame the Baals. And she wants to discredit, she just wants to discredit the Lord by attacking Elijah, by getting him to flee. Why is this? It's because predators love isolated prey. This is something for us now, right? When, when the devil wants to isolate us, that is the time he wants to strike. He wants to strike at our lowest point, right after our highest, um, our highest um, zenith of our, of our ability, and just to see where we're at. The queen operates like the devil or like any predator. She isolates prey because isolated prey is very weak. The Jezebels in our life, wants you, the Jezebels in our life want us isolated. Because if you're isolated, you are weak, no matter how strong you think you are. He sends away his servant. It's not all of Jezebel's doing. Elijah himself sends away his servant. Now, Elijah didn't have a servant because he was rich. I mean, he, he lived out in the wilderness and everything. He didn't have a servant because he was rich. He had a servant because he was a prophet. It was somebody who attended him because they believed in the mission that God had given him. So when he sends away his servant, it's like he's sending away his staff. He's quitting the ministry. This last year, so many of my colleagues quit the ministry because they felt so much like Elijah, so very alone. So many people, they stop coming to church. They stop doing the things that they know they should be doing, reading the Bible. It's much like Elijah sending away his servant. He is now alone. What makes it worse? You know, what makes depression, despondency worse? Stop coming to church. Send away your friends. Send away your family. And then it's just you. It's having that own pity party. When we are wanting to have a pity party, if you want to have a good pity party, you need to send away anybody who's going to rain on that parade. I can relate. I've had some amazing, wonderful pity parties. Everybody was invited and nobody wanted to show up. You know, it's bad when you hate yourself and you're talking to yourself. That's not a, that is an unproductive conversation. 
A lot of us, we do that, right? The positive people in our life, we push out the negative people we bring in because we want to confirm the bad feelings we're feeling. That's an unproductive conversation. We need somebody in from the outside who can look in and speak truth into our situation. What does despondency, what does depression sound like? It sounds like Elijah. I just want to die. I just want to die. You ever wonder what depression sounds like? Read this section. That's what it sounds like. He's had enough of life itself. He does not believe that he has any right to take his life. That's why he asked God to take his life. He's like, it's enough. I pray that you're never in a spot like this. But I know today, just because we have people in this room and people watching on TV, that many of you felt like that time to time and will feel like that time to time. So what I think is important for us to know how God walks us through. Maybe some of you are there today, and I want to tell you how God walks us through. After asking to die, Elijah tells the Lord, it is enough. Those words sound like my voice. Don't they sound like yours? Have you ever been overwhelmed? Overwhelmed like Elijah? Like one thing happens bad, and the next thing happens bad, and the next thing happens bad, and you're wondering, is the water ever going to stop? Is it ever going to stop raining? Is it ever going to rain? Why do I have to feel like I'm Job all over again? He feels it's enough. I've done everything I can, and I'm at the end of myself. Elijah's the thing, the statement that he tells the Lord, it also conceals a bit of his pride as well. He repeats it twice. This, his statement, gives us a clue about where Elijah is spiritually. And it's a good example for us when we pray too. Elijah's statement to the Lord, it's not pretty. It's petty. It's born from pride. But here's the thing about it that's wonderful. It's honest. And if you're not honest in your prayer life with God, you'll never receive healing. We can make ourselves out to be the the noble victim of all the things in life, or we can be honest with God. This is the way I'm feeling. All ugliness, everything. Then God starts working with us where we're at, as opposed to keeping something from him. You know, the verse that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession means to speak the same as. So instead of putting on this false veneer that I'm okay, I'm doing everything perfect, he kind of had that a bit, but then he says, I'm, I'm no better than my father's. It is this uh, fallacy, um, and not, not that it's a technical, logical fallacy, but it's become um, one used in kind of a, uh, other circumstances, but it's called the one good man fallacy. When Elijah says, I alone am left, that's what that is. It's the uh, belief that, Everybody before you was a poser, and you're the real deal. When Elijah says that he is no better than his fathers, what he's revealing is a major issue of pride in his life that God will deal with. He believes he's the one only good man in all of Israel. It's like when we see ourselves in that heroic light. light, We have to put down other people so that we can exalt ourselves because men are pigs, but not me. All those other Christians are so judgmental, but, but not me. And we, make our, we try to make ourselves seem something special. That's what Elijah had seen his life. But fire on Mount Carmel was enough to melt the heart of Ahab and Jezebel. So where is he at? In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story about two men who came to the temple. One was one of the religious elite of Jesus' day, a Pharisee. And he says to God, God, I thank you. I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The other man is a tax collector. When the Bible in the New Testament, it talks about people who are around, it'll say sinners and tax collectors. 
It's because tax collectors were especially hated in Jesus' time. Now, I know we don't like paying taxes today, but you do not hate the IRS man like they hated tax collectors. A tax collector was your neighbor who took your money to pay the, to pay the uh, fee of the soldier who was oppressing you. So this tax collector says, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. The Pharisee's problem was not thanking God for keeping him from sin. That would have been a good, holy thing to say. It was that he did not believe he was like other men, and that was their big problem. They were. We are like other men. God does not love you because you're smarter. He does not love you because you come to this church. He loves you because he loves you. He uses clay pots. James 5 tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Maybe you need to hear this. If you are a man and woman, that he was a man, he was a man with a nature much like ours. So you are a man and woman with a nature like Elijah. You are vulnerable to all the failings of everybody else too. Here's the amazing thing though. Even though we are clay pots, God puts his amazing treasure, his Holy Spirit inside of us. And what he wants to do in you today, or maybe this is for you in a month, in a year, in 10 years, when you're in that place where Elijah is at, that's going to help you walk through this. How do you deal with despondency or depression? When Elijah is depressed, God has him journey to the mountain of God. There is healing that God wants to, wants to walk you through as he did Elijah. So when we look at how God healed Elijah's heart, his mind, his soul, his spirit, this is what I've sectioned it out as. He gives him a nap, he gives him a whisper, and he gives him a friend. That first one, a nap. On Facebook, I saw this written, quote, This is your gentle reminder that one time in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I'm so mad, I want to die. So God said, Here's some food. Why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept and ate and decided things weren't so bad. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. While there's most, much truth in here, it is a bit of an oversimplification. But God did allow Elijah to sleep, and he brought him food. He sends the angel of the Lord. Maybe you may already know this, but if you don't, I'm going to let you know. When the Bible says the angel of the Lord, that is a Christophany, meaning Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So Jesus Christ comes to comfort him. He touches him. He's touched by an angel, the angel of the Lord, and he feeds him. That is because... The issues in our life are not only spiritual, they're not only mental, they're also physical. We don't talk about that much, I know, in church, but it's true. Sometimes what you really need sometimes is just to sleep, just to have a good meal. That's not all Elijah needs, it's not all you need. But you are body, soul, and spirit. You are a triune being, so to speak. Not the same way that, that God is, the Trinity is, but you are one being. You are not three separate beings. You are not your body, and then you have your soul, then you have your spirit, but you are a unified being. That's how God created Adam. He breathed on him, and he became a living soul. He did not have a living soul, then he put it into Adam. He breathed on Adam. He became a living soul. What I'm getting at today is that we have this mistaken idea. It actually comes from the Gnostics, that we are a soul. We have a body. We are body, soul, and spirit. There's no separation. And one will affect the other. If you are sick in spirit, it will affect you physically. If mentally you are drained, you'll be drained, you'll be drained physically and spiritually. So God attends to each one of these needs in Elijah's life. And he has been from the start. Look at his body, rest and food. 
It's interesting when you look at food with Elijah because God provides three times with food for Elijah. We had McRavens, we had McWidows, and now we have McAngels. You know, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, if you wanted to emphasize something, like today we put it in bold, we have italicized, we put it all in capital letters, like the person who forgets the caps lock's on, cap lock is on when they're posting their Facebook posts. This was, this was all of those plus more. If you repeat something three times, get it through your head. I'm not saying it anymore. He feeds him three times because Elijah's daily bread did not come from the means of God's blessing, but it came from God himself. His soul. He asked him twice, why are you here? Well, that's a question for us today, isn't it? Why are we here? Why are you here, Elijah? That's a question that God speaks to us in our lowest times, isn't it? Why are you here? Also his spirit, the still small voice, the sleep and rest that he got. Sleep doesn't always equal rest, nor does engaging in leisure activities really mean that you're doing things that feed your soul. Sometimes when it comes to depression, it is just constant sleeping that does not ever amount to rest. You are always tired. So when I talk about rest, I'm talking about resting in the Lord. I'm not telling you just to take a nap but for you to rest in the Lord. Some of you need to need a rest from worrying about your problems. One thing I'll tell people when they're in my office and they are just overcome with the, the, the issues in life, I, and, and it's affecting their job, it's affecting their relationships, I'll say, okay, tomorrow you get one hour to worry. One hour to worry. And really, even that's not biblical because you're not supposed to worry at all, but it's like it's a step in the right direction from somebody who worries 24-7. I say, tomorrow, one hour, that one hour, freak out, cry, weep. But for the rest of your day, you're done. You've given it to God. Which is right, because he, he bought it with his own blood. Amen. Surely he bore our sorrows and our shame. We need a rest from those things as well. To sleep under the broom, the broom tree, being comforted by our Lord and Savior. What voice is speaking to you? Elijah tried to get all the positive voices out of his life, but he couldn't because God was there with him, speaking to him. Watch what voices you allow to speak into your life. God sends an angel before God himself speaks to the prophet. Once again, Elijah, probably one of the biggest voices you need to be worried about speaking into your life is your own voice. Elijah hates himself. He's speaking to himself. It's an unproductive conversation. So often we need somebody from the outside to give us God's truth. For Elijah, the first one was an angel. Next is a whisper. The mountain of God. This is God attending to his psychological or his, the needs of his soul, his mind, will, and emotions. Elijah's instruction after he eats and sleeps is, is to go to the mountain of God, Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is actually more well-known as Mount Sinai. This is where God met with his people to give them the law. Remember the Ten Commandments, Charles and Heston? It's that mountain that Elijah is going to. He does this and he doesn't delay. But have you ever been so low you didn't want to pray? I've been there before. You know, you're dealing with something, you're being crushed by it. I remember one time, um, I can't remember what it was, so upset about something. Becca's like, let's pray. And I told her, I don't want to pray, I want to be angry. <laughs> Try to tell me you haven't been there those times where we need most to go to the mountain of God, to have a close connection with the Lord. 
Elijah journeys to the mountain where the law was given. And God has something he wants to tell Elijah. Maybe someone wants to tell us. Um, You know, there's a time to confront and a time to let. There's a time to correct somebody when they are wrong. There's also a time when you don't. And that's what God does here. He asks him twice. And the first time, he doesn't correct Elijah. Sometimes when somebody is burying their soul to me, I don't give them the list of things they need to do. I just let them talk. Because sometimes, because that's what the Lord does here. Shouldn't that be our indication? Maybe we don't need to fix everybody's problems for them. We just need to let them talk. That's an encouragement for us too in our own prayer life. Sometimes we just need to go to God with all the warts and everything and say, this is not fair. This is what's going on in my life. And just bear it all and be vulnerable before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He goes to this cave in Mount Sinai. Um, It's interesting, the word for a cave here. Many commentators and translators believe it would be more appropriately translated instead of a cave as the cave, as in the definite article, the cave. The reason why it is believed that this cliff, that uh, cave or cliff that Elijah goes inside is when it's in the Hebrew, it is known as the cave. It is where Moses was put when God passed by. So Moses, he begs God, I want to see your glory. And God tells him, you can't take it. He's like, I don't care. I want to see it anyway. So he puts him in this cleft of the, of the, uh, of the mountain. And God passed by with his back toward, turned towards Moses. And we know he comes down from the mountain. His face is literally shining so bright they put a veil over it. Elijah is in that cliff. When is the last time you were in the cliff for God to pass by? For God to allow God to do something deep and powerful in your life. God tells him to stay there and that he will speak to him. And we know that in the scripture here, as Becker read it, there is an earthquake, there is fire, and there is wind. Elijah waits, there is fire, there is a mighty wind, there is an earthquake. But none of those the Lord was in but in the still small voice. That is not to say that God never appears in those things. He actually appears in all of those things. But really, why the light show if the, if the Lord wasn't in any of those things? Because we often miss the voice of God because we are expecting only mountaintop experiences. But God does his best work in day-to-day obedience. You know what's crazy is mountaintop experiences actually don't change people's hearts. It's a weird thing. But Jesus Christ himself, he's giving this parable of a man, uh, of a rich man and a man named Lazarus. And it's a parable, even though he uses Lazarus, his buddy's name. I'm sure that was great when Lazarus heard that. Um, But anyway, uh, he gives this parable and he talks about this rich man who had all the blessings in this world. And then he dies, he goes to hell. Lazarus, who's poor, who the very dogs have pity on him, he dies and he's in Abraham's side. He's in heaven. And the rich man, he's in hell, and he's looking at Abraham's side, and he sees Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, let Lazarus rise from the dead and talk to my brothers, talk to my family, so that they don't end up in hell. Put your finger in the water, come and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in the grave. Um, That was the song that was associated with that. And what does Abraham tell him? What does Jesus tell him through Abraham? That they have the law and the prophets... And if they don't believe them, then even somebody coming back from the grave, they won't believe. 
This is a hard thing in Pentecostal circles because we think, oh, we have the miracles, people will come. That doesn't change hearts. The, whole, the most amazing miracle is when the Holy Spirit changes, changes the heart. Amen. Miracles are for us to know that God, that's the encouragement for us. Keep going, keep going, keep going. But the greatest miracle and the miracle that needs to happen is the Holy Spirit that changes the heart, the day-to-day obedience. We miss the still small voice if we just think, well, you know, one of the things that just grieves my spirit, grieves the spirit of God, is when I'll hear somebody saying that they're praying to God, show me that you love me. See, I thought three nails, a crown of thorns, and a couple pieces of timber said a lot about Christ's love. That while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. How can a whisper heal? Elijah didn't need a stern voice from God. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's like Joshua, and he's crying before the Lord because they lost that AI, and God says, get up. There's sin in the camp. But there's times like Elijah where, just so very lovingly, he takes us through this process of healing, and he whispers to us. And what does he whisper to Elijah? That God has a plan. Elijah's not the center of the story. He's not the hero coming in on the white horse. But he's part of the story about the hero who's coming in on a white horse one day. What God tells in the still small voice is actually a correction. I often miss this because it's so gentle. Elijah was seeing himself as the last great hope for Israel. And what does God tell him? I've got three people on the bench right now, and I have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee or kissed the bales. Sometimes we have this attitude where we're, the real, we're, we're God's only real people. We're the only people making a stand. It kind of makes us conceited. It's kind of like a cult mentality, to be honest, that we're the only ones doing church right. Now, God has preserved for himself millions across this world who read the word of God, who are, who are progressing the word of God, believe that the Bible is the word of God, who have been changed by God's presence, who are praying for this nation as well, and nations around the world. Sometimes we have the blinders on though, right? We only see what's happening in our own area, just like Elijah. And we're like, I'm the only one left. I can feel like that, that lone feeling. I told you I was speaking with other pastors who say, I just feel so alone. You're not alone. That's a lie from the enemy. You have a community. Every time you take communion, you remember that the blood that flows through your veins is the blood that flows through the veins of every true believer across the world. The blood of Jesus Christ himself. In Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers, you who are spiritual, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Elijah does have a sin, but really it's more about being restored gently, and we should take notes on how to restore others. Not to be like Job's friend, but to be like the Lord here, gently attending to the physical, mental, and spiritual needs. Here's the final thing that the Lord does for Elijah, and it is a friend. It is Elisha. Theologian Bill Weathers said this, Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain, we all have sorrow. But if we are wise, we know that there's always tomorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong, and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on, for it won't be long till I'm gonna need somebody to lean on. Elijah was somebody Elijah could lean on. 
And God put him in his life for a very major reason. At the very end of this chapter, it says that Elisha assisted him. You are not a lone ranger. You need somebody to assist you in this life in Christ. We call it discipleship. My question for you today is, who do you have to lean on? Don't say no one, because God has given you a church. God has given you this church. He has given you the church universal. He has given you many people in your life for you also to lean on. You need to have a disciple. You need somebody to disciple like Elijah had Elisha. Because discipleship is not all about the person being discipled, but the person discipling. Elijah is sent to the first, is, Elijah is sent first to his disciple, Elijah. There is an aspect of discipleship that often gets overlooked, and, uh, overlooked, which is why so many people see discipleship as a non-essential, but it is your essential because by discipling others, you get sharper in Christ as well. As you are being forced to explain to somebody else the goodness of Jesus Christ, you are reminded about the goodness of Christ. It sharpens you up when you are fielding their questions and you're like, well, I don't know why that is. I better check it out. Every person needs to be discipling somebody else. I don't care how old or how young you are. That's because Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Whose burdens are you helping to carry? Who's carry, helping carrying your burdens? And this way we fulfill the law of Christ. When one of God's children is hurting, God holds that child and he uses your arms to do it. The mantle of a prophet. I'm going to speak very briefly about Elisha's call here because one day I want to preach about Elisha's call and I don't want you to say I've already done it. And, uh, but Elijah, he runs over to Elisha who is, uh, who is uh, you know, plowing the field and he puts, his, he puts his cloak on him. That might seem weird, but it's actually not that weird. The cloak of the prophet was the mantle of the prophet. So Elisha, he knows right away. And then he, he, uh, he uh, asks Elijah, can I go kiss my mother and father? This might seem like a story in Luke chapter 9, where all these people are giving excuses not to immediately follow Jesus. But it is different in its, its in heart and in its context. Those people were saying, let me go bury my father, who wasn't dead, as a way of saying, let me get out of this. I still want you to think good of me, Jesus. I just don't want to do any of the work. As a pastor, I hear that a lot. <laughs> Pastor, I think we need to start really doing something for the homeless. And you're like, great. Would you get right on that? Oh, no, no, not me. No, me. I think the church needs to. Oh, oh, I gotcha. Let me just go home. My, I need to break in a couple oxen. Elisha's not doing that. He's actually burning the boats behind him. It's something I believe uh, Christopher Columbus did so that people, really a nasty thing to do, by the way, so that people wouldn't have any way of getting back home. It's like, we're here. We're staying here. He was burning the boats behind him. There was no way he was going back. He burns, uh, he, uh, he cooks the ox, gives them to the people around. He burns the yoke. He kisses his mother and father goodbye because he is, he's done with his old life, ready to follow the call of God into this new life. Worship team, would you come up at this point? There are three mountains in Elijah's life, or three mounts in Elijah's life. Every time you see a triplicate in the scriptures, take note. God is trying to say something. I often see it when I'm reading the scripture. I'm like, God, what are you trying to get through my thick head right now? 
There are three mountains in Elijah's life, Mount Carmel, Mount Horeb, and the Mount of Transfiguration. In Mount Carmel, we know about that one fire comes from heaven. It is the mountain of repentance for a people who have turned to idol worship. Judge for this day, who is Lord? Is the Baals or is the Lord God? And they say at the end of this, the Lord, he is God. It is the mountain of repentance. Maybe you're here today and you're like, if I ask you the question, if you died, where would you go? Do you know where you're going? You should know beyond a shadow of a doubt where you're going. Or today is the day of repentance. Repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your mountain is Mount, is Mount Carmel. Maybe today you are in that place of suffering, despondency, of pre- depression, oppression, and you need Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of healing and tenderness. Maybe there is a correction in your life and God wants to gently correct you. Maybe it's the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the this is in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, he is up on this, he is up on this mount, and Elijah and Moses meet with him, and he is transfigured. And Peter sees it, and Peter's like, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some stuff over here, and Jesus is like, Stop bothering me. Anyway, <laughs> no, he didn't do that. Anyway, um, Jesus Christ is transfigured, so is Moses, so is Elijah, and they speak to the Lord about his death before it happens. This mountain is the mountain of purpose. This is the mountain of the God's call on your life to continue in on it. That is what the purpose of the mountain of transfiguration was for Christ. It is what it is for you. You have a purpose in God's plan. You are not the main character. He's the main character, but you still have a plan. Now, maybe today some of you feel like I don't have my plan. I don't, I'm not in the plan anymore. I've messed up too much. I've strayed too far from the plan that God has set before me. I'm not where I was at camp. I'm not where I was at that convention. I'm not where I was even last summer. He has not given up on you. There's a resurrection of purpose he wants to speak into your life. If you're in Mount Horeb, I would suggest, I urgently beg you to go through the process, resting in the Lord, Wait for the still small voice. Disciple somebody else so that you have a friend to speak into that, into that situation. The worship team in a, in a short while is going to lead us into our last song. During this song every week, that's your opportunity to respond to the message. I put down three questions here. Do you need to lie down under the broom tree for a while? Maybe you feel weary. Maybe you feel just so, so tired. Tired of being tired. But you keep going. You keep pressing on. I know how that is. I remember when my father died, I was busy as I possibly could be because I didn't want to deal with those feelings. And you just need to rest. Or two, do you need to be honest with God? He's asking you, why are you here? Why are you here? And we have that brokenness in us. And it just all kind of gets out of us. Or three, do do you need to go to the mountain of God and hear his still small voice. When was the last time you were at the mountain of God to hear his still small voice? When was the last time you had an encounter with the scriptures that breathed life into death? With that, worship team, please lead us in our final song. We'll end with a benediction. But know today that if you are going through depression or despondency, God is not giving up on you. God is not 
abandoning you, he will walk through that with you. Worship team.